It's not radical. It's right. It's what built this country. You know, I know that, that, that sometimes it must be frustrating watching what's going on. I, I guarantee I get frustrated. But there's, there's some things that I have to mutter under my breath sometimes. And the hardest thing to change in politics is a stubborn status quo. When Washington seems distracted by everything except the things you care about. And there's a cottage industry in Washington that counts on you just being cynical about stuff. So that you don't vote, you don't get involved, you get discouraged, you say a plague on both your houses. But you can't get into that cynicism. Do not let them win by you being cynical. Because despite everything that's happened, despite all the obstruction, America's making progress. We're better off now than we were five years ago. We're going to be better off five years from now than we are right now. Despite the unyielding opposition of a few, there are workers who have jobs who didn't have them before. There are families who have health insurance who didn't have them before. There are students who can afford to go to college who couldn't afford to go before. There are troops who are home with their families after serving tour after tour of war. Don't get cynical. Don't do it. Cynicism is a popular choice these days. It's what passes off for wisdom. But cynicism isn't wise. And remember that it is a choice. Cynicism is a choice, and hope is a better choice. It's a choice that I make every time I sit down with these incredible people that I had, uh, had dinner with last night. They make me hopeful. It's, it's the hope that Alex has when she sits down and she picks up a pen and, and she writes to the president, hoping that the system still works, hoping maybe the letter gets there, hoping that I'll listen, hoping that even when Washington seems tone deaf, your voice might reach a president, your, your voice might reach a crowd in the park, your, your voice might move fellow citizens to change what needs changing. Every day, I receive these thousands of texts of hope from you. I'm listening. That's why I ran for office. That's why I'm fighting for you. I will keep treating your cares and concerns as my own. I will keep trying to restore the American dream for everybody who's willing to work for it. Welcome to Meaning What? I'm Matt Wiseman. At the top there, we had Barack Obama from 2014 in July talking about cynicism is a choice. Hope is a better choice. He mentions five years from now, which will make it July 2019. So as things being better then, He says he's going to keep fighting to restore the American dream to all who want to work for it. The thing, thing about Barack Obama and to Trump to some extent as well, is that they're not wrong in their rhetoric when they're on the campaign trail. 
they're not wrong that we have to take back the industry and the manufacturing sector that we gave to China. They're not wrong that we need to put hope first. We need to be hopeful. We need to let that guide us in our decisions. But when they govern, the policies that they support, the positions they take, the prosecution they decide to drop or pursue, those battles, those fights, forget everything that they do on the trail. Forget all the rhetoric of when they're talking to the average person. They leave us out because they think we don't know. We're not paying attention. Today, I'm going to talk about frustration, voter apathy, and the choice of hope. Hope is definitely a choice. And we need it. We absolutely need hope. I got four smaller parts for you. First, I'm going to talk about terms. You know, like hope, despair, cynicism. Then I'm going to do a little of a bit of analysis on the Democratic Party, followed by what I believe a progressive is and how they should vote and how they should really go about their political identity. Because it's not like a Republican or a, or a Democrat. We are different because we're believers. And we have to believe to be progressives. We have to feel and feel accountable for our beliefs and our decisions because we're progressives. That's not universal. And lastly, um, just a logical end game. So what is the extension of neoliberal ideology? What is the extension of free market fundamentalism? What does that end up being? And then what is the progressive alternative to that? All right. So I'll buckle in and I hope you enjoy all this. Thank you. Hope is believing things can get better, that we can change from what we have from the status quo, from the, the establishment, from the established power structures to something better, to the average person having more power, to the average person having more of an opportunity. It's supposed to be the land of opportunity. That's what America is all about. And we have deprived many, many, many Americans of that opportunity. We have. Our policies have been bad and we haven't changed them. We continue down the road of bad policy. The opposite of hope is despair. Where you just throw up your arms and you say, whatever, we can burn down. It's all, it, it, it can't change. This is the worst possible timeline. This is the worst it can get. And it's just going to slide until it gets destroyed, just falls apart. And I understand that. I do. And then there's cynicism. And cynicism isn't the opposite of hope. 
it's kind of the lack of hope where you believe that people can't change even if you want to have hope and you're still cynical and you think this is the world we have and people are morally bankrupt in leadership and if the citizens of a country are children and the leaders are the the parents and they get to have the say in this this dogmatic top-down way which is how most governments are arranged there has to be some of that then our parents have failed us and we're now suffering and we're only going to suffer that's cynical to say that our parents can only fail us and that they don't understand us our leaders are not looking out for us that's cynical we can choose to be hopeful we can change things we can pressure people to make the right choices we can remove them from office these things can happen wanted to discuss Nancy Pelosi uh, with the the new coronavirus aid package that you put out and kind of how to think about the Democratic Party right now. I don't know if I said this here, but I definitely said it, that as a progressive, as someone on the left, as a lifelong independent before that, as someone who doesn't have any affiliation or identification with any major party with um, especially not the Republican Party they might as well be another country to me and I haven't really had to interact with them being from New England so I've only really understood democratic politics and democratic inequality in the the democratic uh, big D the, the democratic party inside politics and how that's interacted with my life in Massachusetts and my life in New Hampshire and my life in New York. And it's very different in each three of those places. And no voter is a monolith. We're not one thing. We never will be. Whether you're you know, majority white or majority black or uh, majority Asian or what have you, or you're just very diverse, um, you're not one thing. Latinos are not one thing, Southern Blacks are not one thing, and even if you break it up by age, we're just not one thing. Voters are the great diversity of this nation, the great power in this nation. And I have hope in the voter. I have hope in in voting, and I think that is essential to our identity as Americans, that we will not put up with the treatment we've been given. Now, I could say recent history has proven me wrong, but then I go a little further back and uh, history and our ancestors and how the, the U.S. was before. We have had influence. We have changed things for the better. Our leaders have woken up. Woodrow Wilson lost almost all of his party seats because his bad management. We can do that now. The Democratic Party is 
undemocratic. They don't listen to their constituency. They are bureaucratic. They just want to shuffle around papers and they want to believe that that is enough to kind of say that these are our goals and these are our priorities and these are the people we're looking out for and that's it. And they're middle management. They're not actually leading the country. They are saying the country is fine and we just need to kind of tweak it around the edges. <coughs> Excuse me. So this undemocratic bureaucratic middle management party, as Matt Stoller has said uh, just yesterday, that they're, they all have program brain. They just consider their, their priorities are their programs and that's what they're putting out there. They're not leading with any big ideas. They're not really trying to redefine who they represent. And so since the majority of the, of the Democratic Party and the Democratic constituency comes from at least their, their core constituency of belief, comes from the top 10%, they feel that if they only cater to that person, you know, removing salt tax or giving them income tax reductions, that then they're doing their job and that everything will work itself out. Now that is entirely misguided and out of touch with any kind of reality. So as a progressive, I see the Democratic Party and whether they are well-meaning or not, they are not aware of their constituency. They're not listening to the people in their constituency. They are only listening to donors. They're only listening to a certain class, you know, the suburban wine moms. That's who they listen to. That's who they follow up with. That's who they actually push to get things done for. And it's been very clear during the coronavirus pandemic and for the, the pending economic crisis that we haven't even felt yet now that we have 36 million people unemployed and close to 25% of our population not working. Now that's way more than we've ever had in my lifetime and probably even my parents' lifetime, but my grandparents might have suffered through the Great Depression and the Great Depression peaked at 25%. So at that peak, there's four years to kind of deal with these things as it was getting bad. And then the New Deal had to be called into question. So we have time. We do have time. And it's going to hurt. It's absolutely going to hurt. And so we can make the right choice. And if you're a Republican and you're listening to this, please put pressure on the Republican Party. Put them on your representative. There are populist Republicans that are being repressed right now by Mitch McConnell, by Lindsey Graham, by Donald Trump. These people are so out of touch and all they know is power and they are holding on to power, but they are actually being obstructionists. And we can vote them out. We can change things. We do not have to have a duopoly. We do not have to have the, the two-party system that we have. I'm not saying whether you should vote for a third party or you should not vote at all. I'm saying that down ballot, you should definitely vote. You should always try and say your piece. You should be part of the political uh, engagement and do everything you can to represent your values and to be hopeful. But you don't have just two choices. You have the choice of not voting always 
you know, you can go to the ballot and you should go to the ballot and you should vote down ballot. But if you don't want to vote for one of these two awful candidates, you don't have to. It's their responsibility to represent you. It's not your responsibility to choose one of the A or B, just flip a coin. That is not your responsibility. And yeah, some of them may materially be better for you and may be more aligned with you. But if you're choosing between one and two, you are making the wrong choice. You need to choose the person that you think is the best person. And hopefully we can change our electoral system so that that makes sense. That we can actually vote who we want. But nothing's going to change if you choose one or two. If you don't vote, you absolutely don't. You're not using your voice. You still have a say. You still have a right to your opinion. But you are not using your voice. So if you're going to have a platform where you can not vote and you can say why you don't vote and then how that matters, okay. Then you're using your right of free speech to kind of explain away your, your lack of engagement. That's legitimate. But you need to vote unless you have this platform, unless you are someone like Russell Brand. You need to make your case the best of your ability. And if the only time you're ever going to use your voice, the only time you're going to ever use your civic action is going to be when you vote every four years or every two years, if you're going to, um, and you should vote in congressional races, um, or even every year, if there's going to be uh, local races as well, you need to vote for who you think is going to be the best, period. I'm a progressive, and to me, a progressive is someone who believes in fundamental decency of human life, and that doesn't have borders, and that doesn't have a nation. Someone is fundamentally decent and deserves respect just because they are. And along with that respect, along with that dignity that we extend to them, we give them certain rights, the right to vote, the right to housing, the right to food. These are essential. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. These are essential needs for human beings. And there's no reason that any society that we've established in the 2020, it has to have unemployment, the right to a job, right? There's no reason that we have to have homelessness, right to a house. There's no reason that we have to have disproportionately children and older people that are dying of hunger. It's the right to food. These are very simple things. We do not have to have a working poor class that is constantly afraid of losing their job, constantly afraid of their employer, constantly living in fear that if they lose their job, they won't be able to pay their bills and they will be out on the street. You know, it's Roosevelt with his, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, with his carrot and the the stick. You know, you give carrot as an incentive and you give a stick as a disincentive. So if you don't chase the carrot, then you get the stick. We are not beasts of burden. We are human beings and that matters. We need to be responsible for every single citizen, especially in the richest country 
in the history of the world. It's it's an embarrassment and it's a intergenerational shame that we cannot have the person that is the richest person in all of history who has more wealth than 50% of the population pay taxes. Jeff Bezos is a trillionaire. You know, the U.S. government is like $21 trillion um, GDP a year, thereabouts. It doesn't really matter when it gets up to that high. And we do not give money to the poor. We do not help the poor. We do not help the children. We do not help the elderly. In fact, everything we do, helping businesses, helping the stock market, helping the war contractors and the prison contractors, everything we do from the federal government level actually hurts children. It hurts the elderly, it hurts prisoners, it hurts the homeless. And I am fundamentally against that. And maybe you could say I have a religious creed. I'm secular. I believe I have a moral understanding that if I was in that situation, I would not like it. I would not want it. I'm hopeful that we can change it with our, vo our voice and our votes. And so it's one of the reasons I'm doing this. All right, I wanted to talk about one more thing. It's a logical end game, right? So we have this market fundamentalist neoliberal policy, which is going to be the trickle down economics of Reagan that we've kind of embraced in the whole generation. What is the logical end game of market fundamentalism? Of saying a free market is the only market that works. Well, inequality, we've seen it, massive inequality. Many, many, many millions of people being left out of the system. You, people can blame capitalism, and there's an argument for that. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about an ideology of our system right now. That the free market cures all that ails you. That helping the richest people is a cure for everyone. It's insane. And what's going to end up happening is it's either we're either going to be like communist China, we're going to be like Russia where the oligarchy is, you know, communist China where the government owns everything and they have a stake in all the major companies, or we're going to be Russia where the government is serves at the whims of, um, of big business, the oligarchy officially, and then you have somebody from the KGB, the intelligence organization that leads the country. That's Pete Buttigieg, right? He come from naval intelligence. And he wants to be, he, you know, and he's worked for Kinsey, which is a consultant group that believes in this market fundamentalism and firing tons of people to make money. So he's already groomed for that, to be our very own Vladimir Putin. And then, which materially could help people, honestly. Then there's also uh, South Korea. South Korea has like six countries, six big businesses that run the entire country. We could be, that could be our future, outright oligarchy, in which case, you know, having a businessman billionaire like, like Donald Trump or even like Mike Bloomberg is probably a better example because he has a lot more money. Um, as your leader, as government, it just kind of finishes the whole democratic process. It's over. They're going to nominate whoever they want and they're going to continue to do it. We don't 
we are really fighting as progressives for democracy, for the people. And I don't see how that's not appealing. I don't see how that's not not just everybody's viewpoint. Um, and then the progressive policy agenda. If progressives get their way, what do we have? What is the logical end game of progressive policy? Better life for every American, a more share of the wealth, more regulations and controls on big business and big government so that we it will be a big government situation instead of a small government situation, but the big governments are going is going to be able to make sure everybody gets decent pay, make sure everybody has a job, make sure everybody has health care, make sure everybody has a house, make sure everybody can get an education and you know contribute to society and be happy. Make sure that the average person on the street is somebody that isn't going to resent you or you're going to have conflicts with but you're actually going to be able to share in prosperity with. That's what big government can do. And it can restrict the growth of people like Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, you know, who recently tried to subvert our very democracy by, you know, instituting their own Supreme Court in a way. They have their own panel that's going to say what's legitimate and what's not legitimate in content. And they're going to listen to that panel. So they're appointing their own sovereign government to kind of tell the people that use their services what free speech is, what their speech is possible. We need to stop that. We need to stop Google. We need to stop Facebook. We need to stop big agra, you know, con, uh, consolidated agriculture. Con, uh we need to stop big energy. We have a lot of enemies in this nation, and a lot of them are big businesses that are exploiting their position. And they're exploiting the world. Right. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please uh, like, share, and subscribe. Follow me. Uh, if you like, um, and get as many as you can, uh, you, I will be on the last outlaws weekly and we've been doing more, uh, conversations between Zach and I, where we talk about different subjects. So pick that up. It's nice. All right. I hope to see you again next week. Let me know what you think. Bye. The following is a clip from Yang speaks, uh, Andrew Yang's podcast where he has guest crystal ball. I think you're right. Like optimism is the only choice, right? No matter how many dispiriting things I see coming across, you know, across my desk every day here in this town. And, you know, I, I think there are a lot of reasons to be discouraged if you believe in the values that you believe in, but there's no choice other than optimism. There's no choice other than believing that you can make that change because the only other option is a complete like cynical nihilism where you just disengage. Fuck this shit. Yeah, and frankly, I am very, I am I very worried. I get that stuff. I, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sympathetic. I, and I'm to worried that. that that is going to be the um, decision of of a lot of people, especially, a lot of people. especially frankly, young voters, working class voters who just don't see themselves represented or, frankly, even treated with sort of respect by um, 
by the party apparatus. And so that is that is one of my real fears is that that sort of nihilism and cynicism will set in. So you're checking me, you're reminding me that optimism is really the only option. Oh, that's a legitimate fear and concern. And if someone says like, hey, um, these institutions are morally bankrupt and don't care about me, I would say like, I completely understand why you feel that way. Uh, you might not even be entirely wrong. <laughs> right, but you can change it. That's it. That's the thing is I actually agree. I think they are morally bankrupt. I don't think that they really care about you because from the beginning of this crisis, I mean, again, it's never been more clear. Who did Trump bring in to talk to? All the corporate CEOs and the banks. Who did, you know, Richie Neal, who's, you know, the head of an influential committee here in, uh, in on the Hill, who did he want to call up? Like Hank Paulson and Bob Rubin. I mean, it's just like the same cast of characters. And they're clearly the ones who got their giveaways and got their Boeing, got their own piece of legislation handcrafted for them. Even in the small business bailout, right? The bigger guys get the concierge service. Like it is morally bankrupt in my view. That's not like, I, think I don't think it's up for question true. personally. But yeah. That doesn't mean it can't change. And I think yes. that's the piece that you have to remain optimistic about. And you have to recognize that, like, you know, that struggle doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not easy. There are forces that are arrayed that are that like the status quo, that benefit from the status quo. And so you can't get discouraged just because it doesn't happen for you this time or because the system doesn't all change at once. It takes a, a you know, sustained struggle is basically the path that you have to choose. Uh, I, I'm concerned about the negativity as well, because I get it. You know, it's like it's rational, just like it would be entirely rational for someone to check out on politics because it seems exhausting and mind numbing and so negative. And they'd be like, my life is better if I'm just watching Tiger King or <laughs> uh, you know something more diverting. And uh, I, I I endorse Tiger King <laughs> as, I have, as a yeah, fine way to spend. I'm like the only person in America who has not it's watched hilarious. Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a it's a it's actually a well done documentary. Anyway, it's, so okay. like and so any, anyone who decides to check out is like I'm sympathetic, uh, but we don't have a choice. Like we have to engage uh, with the systems, with politics, and try and right the ship. Uh, and they're there's no other way. It's why I ran, you know, I ran a nonprofit for better part of seven years. Um, and I concluded I cannot solve the problem unless I rewrite the rules of the economy from the top down. And there yeah. was only one way to realistically do that. It was run for president and win. So, okay, let me try that. Uh, and while we did not win, like I, I did feel like we made massive progress towards trying to, to implement a different vision. Um, and I'm committed to that. I understand why people have given up, but we can't give up. I mean, like, there's just no choice. And yeah. one thing I admire, I admire a lot of things about you, Crystal, but you're also like this super mom. You've got like three kids. When you talk about being in D.C. in that town, like I, I get the sense you like wake up at the crack of dawn or even before dawn. You like do these shows and the rest of it. Uh, and, and then you're, you're like transporting yourself um, like to – like a totally different environment and then becoming super mom. At least this is what I'm imagining. Uh, and so like you're a parent like I am. It's like we can't give up because, you know, our, our kids need us to win. That's that's it. That's it. Exactly. And and also and not just our kids, Look, our kids, let's be real, have a lot of advantages and are incredibly lucky and privileged within this system and society. But like, you know, do I want them to grow up in a kind of brutal 
place that would pick like certain people deserve to have it all and other people deserve to basically like, you know, deliver their sushi at 2 a.m. for um, for scraps and not have health insurance. No, I don't I don't think that's good for anyone. I don't think it's obviously not good for the people who are, you know, on the front lines, making low wages, struggling every day, like it's obviously bad for them. But I think it's just corrosive to the soul of the country. I think it's corrosive and destructive to everyone that is involved with that. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I I will say that I look at my boys uh, all the time and I reflect on how differently they're growing up than how I grew up. Uh, and one of my boys is autistic, uh, but neither of them is particularly rugged. I'll tell you that. Like they, you know, I look at them and it was like, these kids are so... Uh, Lucky would be the euphemism, I guess, where, you know, it's like, <laughs> like, like, like just a lot of things are going on. But uh, I agree with you that uh, that even the winners lose in this winner-take-all system. That, that And you're seeing it, too. If you were to just uh, be driven by, like, mental health indicators, like, you go to even elite college campuses, the kids are fucking miserable. You know, it, like the, these are like the offspring of the people that like scratched and clawed their way to the top. And then what was the point? You know, like uh, that there is this inhumanity that uh, punishes us all. And certainly it punishes the people who are left in uh, material deprivation and early deaths and poverty uh, first and most immediately. But it is corruptive for everyone. Uh, and there are all of these material incentives right now that distort our behaviors in ways that make us just worse people. There, there are a lot of folks that, you know, and, and you, you, you climb to the top of one of these hierarchies and then you've sacrificed so much for all of this wealth. And then you're like, all right, I guess it must have been for the money. So this money must be the end all be all. Uh, you know, that that's why I became an asshole <laughs> over the last right. like, like, number of yeah. years. That's exactly right. And we have we have to have an uh, I don't know if you're a fan of the economist Thomas Piketty, who's done, you know, seminal works yeah, uh, along with his colleagues on inequality. And he has a new book out that it's very long, but I'm working on it. Um, but one of the things that he lays out is how throughout human history, societies have always had to construct narratives and mythology around why some people deserve this much and other people deserve the scraps. And we tend to, to think that our mythology is like better than, you know, if you're talking about like feudal or kings and queens and all of that. You mean but our meritocracy mythology? <laughs> exactly. I mean, we have to recognize we have our own mythology. And what it says is like, oh, if you are that person that scratches and claws your way like an asshole to the top and like crushes everyone, that you deserve those billions of dollars, billions upon billions that you could never even spend in your entire lifetime. While I worked these hard other for that people... money, Crystal. I worked hard for that money. <laughs> and you deserve it, Andrew. <laughs> you deserve it all. But these other people who, you know, are struggling and scraping and who are lower income or working class, whose, you know, daily life is just very difficult just to, to make it all work that that's what they deserve. And so if that is the mythology at the core of your country, like, of course, that leads to treating some people like they are modern day lords and ladies who deserve to have not only that money and what comes with that, but, pow but to be the people who hold power, who make all the important 
decisions, right? And to be sort of treated as these demigods. And then at the other end of the spectrum, because you are not worthy of those things, you deserve to be treated less than human. And so I think that core mythology is part of what you have really effectively struck a blow against. And that's why, you know, I always tried to, to lift up your campaign and what you were doing, because I think that core message is so fundamentally important. It is so radical to say, like, every human being is worthy and deserves dignity and deserves to be treated fundamentally as a human being, as a human.